Now, for this communion service, I ask that you turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer before reading. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we ask that the powerful working of the Holy Spirit will be known in every heart. That same Holy Spirit poured out by your Son on the day of Pentecost upon your church, in which there were 3,000 crying out, What must we do to be saved? May your people know the tender consolation of the work of Jesus within our hearts. May those in our midst who are strangers to you, who do not know Christ, may the Spirit of God draw them out of self and sin into the light and kingdom of your own dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. First John chapter 2, the first two verses, this is the word of God. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will understand what I am about to say. You're a believer. You trust in Christ. And yet, sometimes your heart is cold and far from him. You sin. You walk away. You disobey. You know that you should come to the Lord, bow within his presence, refresh that relationship. And yet you say, how can I come into the presence of this holy God, this Christ who died for me? I'm so ashamed. My sin is so deep and my sin is so great. However could I do such a thing? How can I even come into the presence of a holy and righteous God? And you have such a guilty conscience, and your guilty conscience is such a heavy load, you don't know what to do. Well, that's why this text is written to Christians. It tells us precisely what we are to do. And before we even unpack the answer to the question, what are we to do, I want you to see God's loving heart towards you. Even in the words chosen by the divine inspiration, as John writes these these wonderful words, you hear something of God's compassion and tenderness toward you. John the Apostle writes, my little children, but behind that is God the Father speaking to you this morning as his little children. Through his servant John, our Heavenly Father speaks of his affection for you because you are a fallen and sinful people, though saved by grace, and you are a people in need of his tender compassions. You see his affectionate fatherly character reaching out for you through the writings of John this morning and embracing you in his own love. And he's revealing the truth that you need. He says, my little children, I am writing these things. He has given to us inscripturated word. He has given to us by divine inspiration the Bible, and especially these words that we find in 1 John chapter 1 and these words from chapter 2. The very transcript of God's heart is what the Bible is. He comes to you, his covenant people, and says, I'm your covenant Lord. I love you. Hear my word that I give to you. And his ultimate purpose His ultimate purpose, of course, is to keep you and me from sin. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. How could a holy God desire anything less than that his people walk away from sin and trust in him for their redemption? In view of forgiveness, he wants us to hate all that is contrary to his nature and contrary to who he is. 
And the context of 1 John 2, 1 and 2 is the context of confession of sin. As we read in verse 9 of chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance then, this grace that God gives us, does not lead to license. No, as we come to know the Lord Jesus, I long to follow him, I long to obey him, I long to be done with sin, and yet I am still within my heart a sinner, and so are you. And so there are times in which I feel so accused. You know the word Satan means accuser, and he accuses our hearts. And not only do we feel accused by those external attacks of Satan, but my own conscience accuses me before God. What am I to do as a Christian when I feel and and sense within that I'm so ashamed of my sin I could hardly come into the presence of this holy God? Well, first of all, I want you to notice in this text that forgiven sinners are still sinners. Forgiven sinners are still sinners. But let's get this straight. Forgiven sinners are completely forgiven. That is to say, those who come to Jesus Christ by faith are justified by grace through faith alone in Christ. You remember these words from the 103rd Psalm, don't you? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You remember these words from Isaiah 43. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. Or these from Isaiah 44. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Or do you recall these great words in the prophet Micah chapter 7? Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And that's true for every believer in Jesus Christ. All of your sins have been cast into the depths of the sea so that in God's court of law, You are justified, declared completely perfect and righteousness because you are dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is an act that is unrepeatable. I am dressed in the righteous robe of Jesus. I am righteous in the sight of God's law, and that law cannot condemn me longer. And there is nothing that can be added to that justification in God's sight, and there is nothing and no one who can take away from the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. So let's begin there. If your trust is in Jesus Christ, you stand before the throne of God, completely righteous in the righteousness of Christ, perfect, and you always shall. But forgiven sinners, justified sinners, still sin. Look at chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And he's writing to believers in Jesus Christ. And so the question arises, and I think this is the question 
that has most been asked of me in my pastoral ministry over the years by believers. If I'm forgiven, if I'm justified, then why do I still confess my sins? Why do we have a confession of sin in our worship service? Why do we, in private, confess our sins if I'm just before the throne of God? Why do I continue to confess my sins? The answer to that is that we must distinguish between two relations, God as condemning judge and God as our Father. Let me try and illustrate it to you poorly. Purely because these are divine things and no human illustration is going to get at the heart of it. Here we have Mike Sly back here who's the headmaster of a Christian school. Now say that one of his children did something wrong in school. By the way, this is not a true story. Don't, don't go up to him afterward and say, what did your children do when they were in school? But let's just say. And then one of his children, say it's Sarah, comes before him into the office of the headmaster, the principal's office. Here's the headmaster of the school. What is he called to do? He's called to administer justice, to treat her as he would any child, to have the same standard for her that he would for any child. Perhaps she's innocent and he declares her innocent, but then when he goes home, his child is still his child, and that child continues to sometimes obey, sometimes not obey, to grow up sometimes disobeying and disrespecting, and he has to discipline Do you see the difference? In the one instance, he's a headmaster. In the other, he's a father with a child. Or think of it this way. Here's this oriental monarch who also, of course, would be a judge. And his son comes before him. And again, he's called upon to administer strict justice. And so there's his son. But in the court of law, this oriental monarch, he doesn't look upon him as his son. He looks upon him as a subject in his kingdom. And he administers justice. In this case, assume as well that he finds him to be not guilty. But then when he gets home, this monarch is a father who has a son. And this son sometimes disobeys and says to him, Father, I know that you're gracious to me and kind to me, and I'm very sorry that I continue to disobey and to sin against you. Do you see the difference? The difference in relationship. When you first come to Christ by faith, God's wrath and condemnation has been removed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God once for all and forever has been taken away. And you are declared righteous in God's court of law. God is no longer a condemning judge. He will not be a condemning judge to those who believe in Jesus. For the Apostle Paul tells us, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank God. But no longer is he a condemning judge, but I'm adopted into his family now, and I'm his son. And I still say to him, Lord, you've been so kind to me, so gracious to me. You've saved me through Jesus' blood. You, you don't condemn me, and, and, and your wrath has been altogether removed. But still within my heart, I sin against you. Yes, in your court, I'm perfect. In your court, I'm just. In your son's perfect record, No one can lay any charge against me, but in my heart I am so far removed from a desire to obey you, and I am so, so very sorry for sinning against you. Why then do I continue to confess my sins? Not because God will condemn us, not because the debt is unpaid, the debt has been paid once for all, but because as a son I continue to sin against my father. In Christ's righteousness, I am perfect. In my heart, 
I am far from perfect, and we are still sinners. Justified sinners, then, are still sinners in our hearts. We do not love it as we once did. We do not enjoy it as we once did. We do not habituate sin as we once did. We do not sin without struggle, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7. But nonetheless, I still within my heart sin against my Father who is in heaven. So do you understand? In God's court I am righteous, I have a perfect record. In my heart I will not in this life be free from sin. I am morally imperfect within my heart. And I will not be perfect within my heart until I reach heaven by the grace of God. Judicially perfect, morally a sinner. You know, John Wesley and Charles Finney, later after him, both taught sinless perfectionism, that it would be possible for a Christian in this life to actually become sinlessly perfect. Well, I have nothing good to say about that, nothing whatsoever, and I have to say that I don't see how anyone can understand the condemnation of the law, the perfection and holiness of God, and believe that in this life you can be within your heart morally perfect, in the court perfect, justified, but within your heart far, far from perfect. One man said, who believed in sinless perfection, you know, I haven't sinned in years. A gentleman close to him said, you just did. What sin are you talking about? Well, you just told a lie. So you see, this is what John has in mind. Forgiven sinners are still sinners, and that's why we confess our sins. second thing I want you to see is that forgiven sinners, that is justified sinners, perfect in Christ's righteous robe, forgiven sinners do not lose their Savior when we sin. Because look at the text, 1 John 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have that blessed present tense. Right now, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has an advocate with the Father, and he is qualified to plead our case. He can enter into the Father's presence through his own shed blood for each of us. You sinned, how awful it is, and we should never minimize our sin. How awful that we Christians sin. There is still indwelling sin in the heart. But you did not lose your advocate when you sinned. You did not lose your lawyer before the Father when you failed. Sin is awful, but you did not lose your advocate, Jesus Christ. Did he not love you when in eternity past he contemplated you in sin? Did he not die for sinners Well, he intercedes for sinners at the right hand of the Father today. Well, my sin is so great, Pastor, you just don't know. Oh, yes, I'm speaking about something with which I'm very familiar. Let me assure you, I'm very familiar with this theme, this sinful heart, the need of this passage to be preached. I am very familiar with this. I do know my sin is great. But I also want to proclaim to you that your advocate is greater than your sin. His righteousness is greater than your sin. His blood atonement is greater than your sin. And therefore, your justification lasts. And for our continuing moral struggle with moral defilement, his blood pleads for us effectually before the throne. And I think about my friend Raymond Swanson, that great preacher of sovereign free grace, 
died at age 42 and when I attended his funeral and had a part in his funeral to preach the gospel. There is this uh, group that got up to sing. I think I told you about it. They sang, uh, let my works plead for me. Let my works plead for me. And I was actually very surprised that my friend didn't sit up in his coffin and rebuke them. Uh, But some of us had the opportunity to offer a gentle but truthful rebuke. My friend, it's not let my works plead for me. It's let Jesus' blood plead for me. That's what John is saying here. I don't have any work that can plead for me. Nothing. Not even my most holy work is untainted by sin. Everything I do is tainted by a a moral failure of some kind. I need Jesus' blood to plead for me, and so do you. And so, when we sin, yes, it's awful, but you have not lost your advocate before the throne of God. Third thing I want you to see is God's provision for saints who are still sinners. And we find it here as he uses two images. First, he uses the courtroom image. Because he tells us that we have an advocate, a righteous advocate with the Father. The word here is parakleton. It's a lawyer, an advocate, uh, one who pleads another's case, literally toward the Father, in the Father's presence for you. The just God in love provided your Redeemer who justifies, who accepts sinners. He fulfilled the righteousness that God's righteousness required him to require so that we have an advocate with the Father. This means that the once-for-all-finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, never-to-be-repeated sacrifice, continues to avail for you now and forever because your advocate pleads your case in heaven. What a lawyer. What an advocate. What a great Savior we have. Yes, as one old preacher says, There's enough tinder in the life of the most moral man to keep the flames of hell burning forever. But you see, the justice of God is infinite, but my Savior's sacrifice is infinitely valuable, and he has removed the fires of hell forever. And so you, Christian, will never be dragged into court again. Isn't that the point of Paul the Apostle when he says in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Paul in Romans 8 says precisely what John does in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. So that we sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And so you have one intercessor, and that one intercessor is Jesus Christ, our righteous advocate. Which means that we shouldn't be looking for other advocates and other lawyers, should we? I don't need Mother Mary interceding for me. I need Jesus Christ interceding for me. I don't need some saint that has gone on interceding for me. When I sin, I need Jesus Christ interceding for me. I don't need a human priest interceding for me. I need my great high priest, Jesus Christ, interceding for me. 
I need Jesus Christ, my advocate. I need the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so do you. And so the provision that he has made is a righteous advocate, a lawyer, your defense attorney. And what is that defense? Here is my blood shed for this sinner who now believes in my name. May he be pardoned forever, and we are. But there also is another way in which he gets at the provision that he's made for us by using a temple image, because he uses this word propitiation. You see it here in 1 John 2, 2. Look at it. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also, actually literally the Greek says, for the whole world. Also for the whole world. Now, in Romans 3.25, the Apostle Paul said, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood received by faith. Propitiation means one who bears the wrath of God in our place and as our substitute. This awful wrath of God has been borne by Jesus Christ in our place. And so your case, your case, you've sinned against God, your case is in the hands of the one who satisfied wrath, and the day of atonement has been fulfilled in Jesus. Hebrews chapters 9 through 10 describes it for us. Jesus Christ passes through the heavenly court to the holy of holies where God is present, not once per year, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, not for his own sins, for he had none, but for others. A spotless sacrifice offered himself once for all at the end of the ages is now seated at the right hand where his blood continues to purify from sin. I read my friend Mr. Spurgeon this week and I could not forbear letting you hear these words. Mr. Spurgeon said, He seems to say to the great father in the day when the sinner stands arraigned, Yes, my father, that sinner was unrighteous. But remember what that I was accepted as his substitute. I stood to keep the law for him and gave my act of obedience. I went up to the cross and bled and so gave my passive obedience. I have covered him from head to foot with my doing and my dying. I have so arrayed him that not even the angels are adorned as he. For though they may be clothed with the perfect righteousness of a creature, I have given him the righteousness of God himself. I am become unto the people the Lord their righteousness. See, I have taken the jewels out of my crown to bedeck them, the garments from my own back to cover them, and the blood from my own veins to make the dye in which I have dipped their garments till they are purpled with imperial glory." What can there be asked more for the sinner than this? Jesus Christ, the righteous, stands up to plead for me and pleads his righteousness. And Mark, he does not say, if I do not sin, but if I do sin. There's the beauty of the text. It does not say, if any man do not sin, we have an advocate. But if any man sin, we have an advocate. So that when I have sinned and come creeping up to my closet with a guilty conscience and an aching heart, and feel that I am not worthy to be called God's son. I have still an advocate, because I am one of the many men that sin. I sin. I have an advocate. Oh, praise God. I sin, but I have an advocate. Christ, by his advocacy, does three things for you, believers. He presents the merit of his blood for you. He answers every indictment against you, and he calls for acquittal. The law is satisfied. 
because he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, fourthly, what does this mean for you believers who continue to sin? What does it mean for you? What does it mean? Let me tell you three things it means. The first thing that it should mean is that sin, in our eyes, should be ugly. You know, back in 1 John 1, 9, that's what confess means. It means to say the same thing. We're saying what God says about it. Sin is ugly. We confess our sins. We say, God, this is just awful and vile and ugly. We don't minimize sin. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, put it this way. The sight of Caesar's bloody robe incensed the Romans against them that slew him. The sight of Christ's bleeding body should incense us against sin. Let us not parley with sin. Let that not be our joy which made Christ a man of sorrow. So that when we sin, we should see its ugliness, its heinous character. We should hate it and try to hate it by the grace of God as God himself hates sin. But the next thing it means for us is our sins are awful, but the door of mercy has not been shut. Therefore, what am I to do when I sin against my father? No longer a condemning judge. The wrath of God has been removed, but I've sinned against my father who loves me. Well, this is what you are to do. Immerse your conscience in Jesus' blood. Trust in the sacrifice of Christ. Depend upon the promise of his advocacy for you. That's what you do. You get on your knees, you confess your sin, and you trust what God has promised. I have a righteous advocate, and he forgives me my sin through Jesus' shed blood. That's what you do. Don't keep back, don't hesitate, go. Go and confess your sins to God. And then there's this. What John said way back there in Ephesus, almost 2,000 years ago, that we've read together in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, it's not true only for those addressed directly by John way back then, but it's true for us believers here and now, today. For he says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. Now let me tell you what that does not mean. It does not mean universal redemption. One Sunday night I'm going to take the whole idea of particular redemption and go through the scriptures with you and and unpack that. Uh, That Christ died for his elect. He actually died to redeem sinners. That his blood cannot fail. When the choir at the end of the service sings about about uh, Christ dying for all mankind. It's a quote from the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, it does not mean, should not be taken to mean every individual. If Christ died for every individual, every individual will be saved. Because he actually achieved redemption when he shed his blood. He didn't just make salvation possible. He actually saves sinners through his shed blood. Scripture teaches particular redemption. Universal redemption, that Christ died for everyone, many of whom are going to be lost. Dishonors Christ, dishonors his shed blood, dishonors his work, and dishonors the justice of God. It says double jeopardy. It says Christ paid the debt and he paid it in full. And then there are these people over here that are going to pay it a second time in hell. That's not just. No, no. Christ paid the debt 
for his people, and those people will be drawn to put their faith in Jesus Christ. It is infallible. It will happen. The good shepherd gave his life for the sheep. So that we may truly sing those words of Toplody, If thou my discharge has procured and fully in my stead endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. If the debt has been paid, the debt has been paid, and I owe it no longer, and you owe it no longer, people of God. Universal redemption will remove the comfort from this text. If he were saying Christ died for every man without exception, that would mean that he intercedes for the lost who will remain lost in hell forever, and that would mean that our advocate loses cases. Jesus Christ, our righteous advocate, never loses a case. He has never lost a case. He does not lose a case. He will never lose a case. Those for whom he intercedes or those for whom he shed his blood are those the Father chose from eternity past Those are the ones drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit to put their faith in Christ and are given the gift of faith to trust. He has never lost a case, not our righteous advocate. I think that's important for you to hear. I'm telling you, I know that men are in pulpits trying to ground salvation in the very errors that I'm trying to demolish constantly, but here it is. Christ is the Savior Not someone who just makes it possible if you finish the job. He saves his people from their sins. And it is important for you to hear it. My righteous advocate will not lose his case when I sin against him. But here's what it does mean when he says that he is the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but also for the whole world. It means not only you to whom I write these things, but the redeemed of every place, the redeemed from every people and tongue and tribe and kindred and nation on earth, the redeemed of every period for whom Christ propitiated the wrath of God, for the Jew who believes, for the Gentile who believes, no matter your background or how great your sin, this lawyer has never lost a case For his people, not only here in this church in Ephesus, but throughout the whole world, the whole globe, and the whole of history as he has saved us from the ugliness of sin. And for you, believer, again, that means Christ presents the merit of his blood. He answers every indictment and his sacrifice calls for acquittal because the law of God is satisfied. Do you see? that your sin is great, but that he is greater? Do you see that your sin is awful, but that his advocacy for you cannot fail? And he is a righteous advocate for the Father. Oh, take heart from that, my, my flock. Take heart from that when you have sinned against God. But undoubtedly, in a room such as this, there are those also hearing the proclamation of God's word, and you were lost, and you do not know Christ, And there is only one labor for sin. Let me tell you, my friend, there is only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ who shed his blood for sinners. And oh, how glad I am that God is not waiting for your permission, that God will save whom he will, and only through the sacrifice of Jesus. But let me tell you, you can never save yourself. 
You know, I mentioned the name Augustus Toplady a few moments ago and quoted a line of, of one of his hymns, and we sing his hymns very frequently around here. Augustus Toplady, that 18th century uh, preacher, uh, pastor, theologian, you know, he wrote an article called The National Debt. We talk about the national debt. However, can we pay it? Well, there was a national debt in Britain at the time, too. But he quickly segued into the greater debt than the national debt in England. And he said, let me tell you about the debt of sin. This awful debt, this awful load of sin, let me tell you about that debt. The national debt. And he said, look, let's figure it this way. If we sin once in 24 hours, and he calculated it out, if you're 10 years old, 20 years old, 30, all the way up to 80. If you double that, reasonable thing to do. And then he said, if you sin once in every hour of life, and then once in every minute, and then once in every second, which is the case because everything the unbeliever does outside of Christ is counted for sin. So he said, once every second. And this is what he calculated. In this view of the matter, our dreadful account stands as follows. At 10 years old, each of us is chargeable with 315 millions and 36,000 sins. At 20, with 630 millions and 720,000 sins. At 30, have any 30-year-olds here? At 30, with 946 millions and 80,000 sins. At 40, anybody here 40? With 1,261 millions 440,000 sins. At 50, 1,000. 576 millions and 800,000 sins. At 60, 1,892 millions and 160,000 sins. At 70 years of age, 2,207 millions and 520,000. And at 80 years of age, 2,522 millions, 800. And he asked this question, when shall we be able to pay off this immense debt? It's worse than that. Any one sin is deserving of God's infinite displeasure. You couldn't pay for one. One sin deserves God's infinite displeasure, and you need an infinitely valuable sacrifice on the cross in your place to pay that debt and to bear that wrath. And at the conclusion of this article, Toplady appended a new hymn that he had written. And here's the original text of that new hymn appended to this article on the national debt. Here are the words. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. 
wash me, Savior, or I die. Whilst I draw this fleeting breath, when my eye strings break in death, when I soar through tracks unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And oh, may the Spirit of God enable some sinner this morning for the first time to pray from his heart, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.